So return then, and we are in Matthew 26, and we are continuing the build-up to really the crescendo, the, the great moment in the gospel of Jesus Christ coming up on His death and then His resurrection. And the preparation for this is many steps, and we're at this next one, where Jesus is betrayed. He's arrested, of course. This will lead to eventually His death. Have you ever yourself been accused of doing something bad that you didn't do? And worse than that, not only were you merely accused of doing something bad, but then you had to suffer the consequences as if you'd done that bad thing. That's the greatest injustice. On December 20th of this past year, just before Christmas, uh, Devonia Inman, a man, walked out of prison a free man, finally. But that was after he had served 23 years of a life sentence for a crime he didn't commit, specifically the murder of a Taco Bell manager in Georgia. Devonia was wrongly accused, he was convicted, and he was serving a sentence for something he didn't even do, as later DNA evidence came forward to exonerate him. But again, that was 23 years too late. That's a tragedy by itself, but then it's compounded if you consider the man who actually committed the crime was roaming free. It's horrible. It's the greatest injustice. And of course, no one signs up for that. That is, no one signs up, well, I'll take your life sentence for you. Though I did nothing wrong and though you did all of the crime, I'll take that on for you, of course, unless you come to Jesus Christ. He did sign up for this, so to speak. This is what our Christ has done. He has taken our sins, He's taken our sentence, He's taken our life imprisonment and death sentence, that you might be free, that you might go off scot-free in this. Because, of course, we're the guilty ones. And yet, even though He knew that, even though we have turned from Him, He still stuck with us. He still walked through all of this. He still defended us. He still rescued us, no matter what pain was on the road to do this. And if we believe that about him, if we believe that what we see is true about him in his word, if we trust in this Christ, then we do well to stick with him as he is stuck with us. We do well to trust him even when it gets so hard. We cannot leave him. He is the one that has life in himself. He did it for us. Let's hold fast to him. Because that really sets up in our text this morning, this contrast. You see Christ being faithful, faithful to the word and will of God that's before him. Even though it's so painful down the road, you contrast that with the disciples by the end, verse 56 of our text, then all the disciples left him and fled. They didn't stick it out. They didn't stick with him. They ran when the going got most tough and they fled. So this call to us is to walk after our Savior, really to walk with Him, to stick with Him. Stick with this faithful Savior. Because get this, even for these disciples, they are going to run from Him and turn from Him, but He doesn't give up on them. He sticks with them. The call is for us. Let's stick with such a faithful Savior. He loves us so, and He is staying the course to save you all the way to the end. Let us hold fast to Him. So we're going to see His faithfulness here about why he is so trustworthy, why we should stick with him even when the going is so difficult for us. And first, we see his faithfulness this way, is that he was betrayed by a friend. We see his faithfulness to endure the pain, to stay the course, even as he was betrayed by a friend. Verses 47 to 50 of Matthew 26. Now last week, we considered Jesus' agonies there first in the Garden of Gethsemane, 
as he was pleading with his father for any other way, any other way but the wrath of the cross. Is there any way we can do this for your glory and the salvation of your people? Let's do it. Let's find a way. And yet, even as he repeatedly prayed and his prayer was going unanswered, or at least his request, he punctuated each request, each prayer with that submissive phrase, not my will, O God, but your will be done. And then with determination, we saw at the end of our text last time, he rises up, disciples, take your rest, I will stand up and save you. And then he says, this is the end of verse 45, the Son of Man is being betrayed in the hand of sinners, and the Son of Man is coming to redeem. So rise, verse 46, let us be going, see my betrayers at hand. His mission, the will of God, his mission to save the world is on. And he's taking it on, and he stepped forward right into it, and he knows there's pain right behind the curtain. And first, it's the pain of betrayal, the pain of having your back stabbed. Verse 47, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. The great irony here. Jesus is familiar with crowds. He's been around them through his whole earthly ministry. They've dogged him wherever he's gone. Remember, we've seen that throughout the Gospels. But of course, all of the great crowds, this very term that's used, all before they'd all come to him for healing. They wanted compassion. They needed Jesus and they were coming for his aid. Now there's a great crowd, except it is not here for healing. It's here for harm. They're here to seize him sent from the religious leaders, finding some way to rid themselves of this problem, this risk they see, Jesus. Now, as they come in the dead of night, maybe there's moonlight here, but as they're going to seize Jesus, and to be clear, they're after Jesus. He's their target. As this text unfolds, it's evident they're not after any of the other disciples. They're just after the one. But of course, as you approach in the night, maybe in the moonlight only, It would be hard to identify Jesus from the other 11 that are with him. I mean, honestly, you couldn't pick him out in a lineup if you had all 12 of them there. Remember, Jesus didn't have a halo. We know from Isaiah, he had no form or majesty that we should desire him. He wasn't the tallest. He wasn't the most handsome. He just looked like a normal Jewish guy from Galilee, like all the other disciples that are there. Judas, though, he knows Jesus intimately. He was, of course, part of the twelve, part of the band that went around with Jesus, ministering with him and for him. And so that's why he's here. He's part of the plan. He's the spy. He's the one that's going to give the tell so they arrest the right guy. And But in the mess of all this, and as they come up, he has to give a sign. He needs to provide an appropriate signal so they grab the right guy. Look at verse 48. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. Again, given the darkness, given this crowd of lookalikes, this embrace would be the clear sign, oh, that's the guy we need to grab, that's the guy we need to seize. It would distinguish Jesus from the rest, their lone target. And so then he gives the signal, and so Judas quickly seeks to execute his plan. He's pouncing. He's ready. Verse 49. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi! And he kissed him. This calls to mind that 
ominous proverb from Proverbs 27, verse 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Because again, that's the thing, right? If you saw this happening from afar and you were just focused on Judas and Jesus, again, this would, by all appearances, seem like a sign of affection. This would seem like a sign of trust, respect. Even in the words he says, greetings, rabbi. And yet, of course, it's nothing of the sort. It's the kiss of betrayal. It's the kiss of death. And yet Judas, as he approaches Jesus, seems to present it as something else. He's still playing the part, at least in his mind, that he is this undercover spy. Hail, Rabbi, greetings, our great teacher. What respect, what honor, right? Of course, Judas is not sincere. The crowd knows that. The disciples surely suspect something is up. And most of all, Jesus knows. This is a betrayer's kiss. As his comment to Judas makes very clear, verse 50. Jesus said to him, friend, do what you've come to do. Now note two things. First off, Jesus dubs Judas as his friend. This whole interchange, though, drips with irony, doesn't it? As we've already seen. Hail, great rabbi. Nevertheless, I think Jesus genuinely cares for Judas calling him to be one of his twelve. He he spent three years intimately, closely with Judas, as Judas was part of his band of followers. He was one of the twelve. He was one of Jesus' closest companions on earth. But this also then brings to mind what the Scriptures had predicted, but that the Messiah would be betrayed by a friend, by a closest companion, to make the pain that's coming of his death Sting all the more. Consider this, Psalm 55. There David, the forerunner of the Messiah, speaks of the pain of his own betrayal. He says this. This is Psalm 55, verse 12. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from him. But it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. Oh, it's one thing to have enemies hate you, isn't it? But it's another of such a greater, deeper sorrow. It is the salt in the wounds to have your closest friend turn on you, the one you trusted, betray you. And the pain that David experienced here, it's getting reprised by his descendant, the greater David to come, Jesus the Messiah, whose very death is now coming, as predicted here, by a betrayal. But Jesus knew that all along. He knew it from the very beginning. He knew it when he called Judas. He knew that he'd be standing there with him this night, being stabbed in the back by him. Judas, come follow me. But second, after addressing him as friend, this betraying friend, next Jesus says this as it continues, again in verse 50, Friend, do what you've come to do. Now, that phrase, do what you've come to do, translators have struggled with how to render this comment. I believe you'll look in your ESV Bibles and you'll notice a footnote there that gives an alternative translation. It can be instead of a statement or command, do what you've come to do, Jesus perhaps, and I think likely here, poses a question. Friend, why are you here? Only, of course, if Jesus does phrase this as a question, we know this is not some kind of honest question. Jesus was not 
inquiring, really, why was he here? It was an ironic question, satirical one, because of all people, even more so than Judas, Jesus knew why Judas was there. He declared it as Judas came forward, right, and said to the man, behold, my betrayer draws near. He knows what this is about. But Jesus' almost sarcastic question, really, plays along with Judas's feigned respect and going along with that hypocrisy and this kiss and the greeting. Hail, Rabbi, greetings to you, and then the kiss. Oh, Judas, my dear friend, fancy meeting you here. What are you up to, I wonder? Perhaps Judas presumes he is so clever, he has deftly tricked them all, including Jesus, which would indicate, of course, he has not known him or understood him. But Jesus' comment to Judas here demonstrates that, of course, Jesus is not surprised. He saw this coming, and he sees right through Judas's fake affection, because Jesus knows this is all part of the plan of God, to be betrayed by a friend, by a kiss, to have deep devotion turned and then spurned to use to hurt and cut all the more. And so with Jesus singled out, they pick him up and book him. The end of verse 50, they came up, they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. They got their right guy. But understand again, Jesus saw it coming from a mile away and he didn't run. He didn't bail. He didn't flee. He didn't cower. He didn't try and make one of his disciples be a double for him or stand in for him. He didn't take cover under the darkness. He received the kiss standing there so bravely knowing this is the kiss of death. And two encouragements arise for us from this, at least. First, know that your God, your Jesus, your intercessor, He knows exactly what it's like to be betrayed. A number of you have worked through this betrayal of some sort. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's a a partner at work or, or some other family fracture. Maybe it's your own kids. You've been betrayed. And when that happens, when you trust somebody and they turn from you, what do you feel? You feel alone. You don't know where to go. You don't know who you can trust in. You don't know who you can turn to. They turned on you, the one you trusted. They took advantage of you. They, they took advantage of your trust. The confidence you put in them, they then turned to then spike you with it. They took it as an opportunity to hurt you. And again, you feel so alone. But know this. You don't have to bear that pain alone. He knows what it's like to be betrayed, even with a kiss. Even with intentionally hypocritical love meant to do evil and harm. He knows this. He knows what it is like. And so that means he knows how to give you the grace that you need in that moment. He knows what you need to keep the faith in him in the pain. He knows what you need to still stick to Christ. And he's going to give it to you. He knows what you need. So you can just put that next faith-filled step forward before the other in God's plan. Even when it's really hard and there's pain it seems, by every step you take. He knows what you need. He knows this pain of betrayal. Don't forget that. Turn to Him. And that relates, though, to the other encouragement we take as we turn our eyes back on Jesus specifically. The other encouragement is this. Again, He knew all this. He knew this was coming. He foresaw all this pain. He anticipated this grief. He knew this betrayal was on at hand, and He didn't run. And we see here with his words to Judas, he's embracing this moment. 
This role given to him by the will of the Father to be betrayed, to be backstabbed, to take on this pain, because he knows what it means. It means, I'm going to save your people, O Father. It's going to be pain for me, but it's going to mean redemption for them and glory for you. Here I come, even when I know they will turn their backs on me, which is what the disciples do by the end of our text. And haven't we done the same, turning our backs on him time and again? Even when we've said, greetings, Rabbi, give me a good sermon. Give me a blessing from your word this morning. Bless my life when all the while it is a kiss so we can turn and then go after our sin or withdraw into our own desires. And he knows all that. He took the kiss. He took it for you. Is he not a savior worth sticking with? He was betrayed by a friend. We see his faithfulness too as he's misunderstood by a follower. Verses 51 to 54. He stays the painful course ahead, even as his closest disciples misunderstand him. And can you understand that kind of frustration? You're investing your life, you have your chosen pupils, disciples, and they still don't get it, no matter how many times you've told them. And yet he still sticks it out because he knows it's going to cost in the end. Because he's faithful. As our account continues, then, it's filled with action. As soon as one thing happens, another happens right on its heels. As Jesus is seized and being arrested, one of the disciples springs to the rescue. Verse 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Matthew's gospel doesn't tell us, but can you take any guesses? who this disciple was. Of course, it's Simon Peter. John's gospel says that. Perhaps Peter's coming through on his oath from verse 35, remember? Even if I must die, I will never deny you, Jesus. Again, I think Peter was sincere as best he knew his heart. And I think his actions here prove that. He'll defend Jesus to the death, even though he's hopelessly outnumbered and outgunned or outsorted, I guess more literally. But none of that stops Peter. He draws his sword, and he rushes in, and he rushes in swinging, though not a great shot, apparently. He wounds the high priest's servant, lopping off his ear. That's only a flesh wound. He'll survive, right? Perhaps he dodged as Peter swung. Either way, on his face, the point is this, Peter, you're a helpless defender. This is a weak and doomed protection detail for King Jesus. The disciples' defense attempts really are quite laughable, basically useless. Now, what would you have done if you were in Peter's shoes? Would you have run? Would you have cowered? Would you have fainted? Would you have run ahead swinging? You might say, Peter should be commended for his bravery. Again, he's all in with Jesus, apparently, as it all seems. And so Jesus does speak to him next, and he does so directly, only, of course, It's not an encouragement, but a rebuke. Jesus corrects Peter. And his correction is three-pronged. It has three parts. First of all, Peter, you've misunderstood my kingdom, even still. You don't even get yet how this works, apparently. Verse 52. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Swords and lopping off ears are not the weapons of Christ's kingdoms, nor the way of his kingdom. 
The kind of kingdom Jesus now is building is not advanced or defended with swords, with guns, with nukes, or with earthly powers, threats, or punishments. No, the sword that cuts the flesh is not the weapon of Christ's church or his kingdom. No, we understand for now, that sword belongs in the hand of the state, of the king, of governments. It's what Paul tells us, even tells us in Romans 13, that those are God's servants given to wield the sword to correct and punish evildoers. That's not Peter's job, nor ours as the church. But again, why not? Because as we've talked about this before, the kingdom that Christ is building, it operates on a different plane. It operates in a different sphere, in a different realm. Again, I remind you in just a bit, Jesus is going to appear before his earthly ruler, Pontius Pilate. And Pilate then, in an inquiry, he wants to know if Jesus really claims to be a king. Because then, as he's saying, are you a threat to Roman peace and Roman rule here in Israel? Well, here's Jesus' reply. This is John 18, 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. Oh, I'm a king, all right. I'm just over a kingdom that doesn't have borders you can see, Pilate. It doesn't wield weapons that you would be scared of. I wield the truth. I come to speak the truth. In that way, it's a spiritual kingdom that rules and changes the hearts of men, such as Jesus explains as he continues here. This is John 18, 36 again. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. If you are taking up the sword or the gun or the fist to fight for Jesus to advance his kingdom, Jesus says, stop. Put it away. We're engaged in a greater battle. And those weapons don't work in this battle. We're in a battle for the eternal souls of men. And there is one weapon, and that's the word of Christ, the gospel that goes forth. Taking down those thoughts and strongholds that are against Christ. To bring them in devotion and submission to Him. Because this too is what Peter has so misunderstood And so miscalculated about Jesus, really God's even true power. He's misunderstood his true power. Our Lord's rebuke continues now on to verse 53 of Matthew 26. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? Peter, that's great. You want to help and all, but to get real, you offer nothing. You don't stand a chance against this armed crowd of thugs and soldiers. And more than this, Peter, I don't need your help. Don't you realize I have the ability to call upon my father and he can give angels to come? He can give us each an army of angels right now if we need it? Twelve legions of angels? That would be the equivalent to 72,000 angelic soldiers coming at the ready. Oh, and by the way, it took one angelic soldier to slay 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Already at his call in a moment's notice, Peter, thanks, but no thanks. I don't need your help. And by the way, Peter, with what you're doing, you're not making me or yourself any safer. Because what's going on here, Peter, isn't about keeping safe or staying safe. It's about the will of God. And that uncovers this final way that Peter has misunderstood Jesus. He's grossly misunderstood, even still, Jesus' very mission. Verse 54 now. 
but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Peter, do you really want to step in and stop this? Do you want to stop the will of God to unfolding? You're not making things any safer for you. Actually, if you're opposing me, you're endangering your soul. Because that's what I'm coming to do. I'm doing this to save it. Remember earlier when Jesus finally tells the disciples, hey, by the way, I'm the Messiah, but I'm not the Messiah. You think I am? I'm the Messiah that's supposed to die on the cross. And what does Peter do? Oh, no, 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 no. Don't have, start having those thoughts, Jesus. Don't get so down on yourself. And then Jesus has to turn around and say, get behind me, Satan. You're setting your mind on the things of men, not the things of God. That's what he's doing once again. He's misunderstood the mission. God has ordained in his prophetic word, and it's all going to plan just this way, Peter. You don't want to get in the way of that. The scriptures foretell the betrayal. They foretell the pain. They foretell this suffering. They foretell the unbelief. They foretell the sorrow. Again, don't get in the way of this. Because note this, Peter. They're not in control right now. They're not arresting me against my will. Isn't that so beautifully put in John's gospel with this interchange? The first time they engage Jesus as the crowd comes to arrest him, they say, he asks, who are you looking for? And he says, I am Jesus. And they all fall down. Somehow they still all get back up and want to go arrest him. That's another thought. But it's just showing you, Jesus is in total control. They're not arresting me. They're not taking my life from me. I'm laying it down, Peter, and I'm doing it for you. That's my mission. That's why I've come. Don't get in the way of that plan. Of course, if Peter could see that, if he could understand these things, I don't think he would have objected. But it can be so difficult to trust in the Lord's way of doing things when what you see doesn't make sense of that or doesn't seem good or seems very challenging. And in a way, Peter's sword represents our own attempt to take matters into our own hands, doesn't it? We've misunderstood him. We've misunderstood his mission. We don't understand what he's doing. And so we're more than ready to step in and take control ourselves, you know, to help Jesus out and help out his kingdom. It's like the church that says, listen, I see that a lot of people aren't going to church anymore. They they find it boring, they say. So let's make it exciting for them. Let's entertain them. Let's have a show. Let's meet their felt needs, what they think they need, as opposed to what God, their creator, tells them they need in a soul-dying, rising Savior. Let's not discourage them with unpopular Bible truths. Let's skip over those. We don't want to embarrass Jesus. If we talk about gender or sexuality or marriage, it puts people off. I'll defend you, Jesus. I have an idea. When our inclinations to such things only shows we've misunderstood him. We've misunderstood his word and his ways and the way he's at work in the world. He's not embarrassed by what he said. And he said it clearly for a reason. We do not do well. We are not at work uniting with his work, with his kingdom, when we're trying to sell health, wealth, and prosperity, for example, because it's popular or because it sounds good. Nor are we advancing his kingdom by establishing so-called Christian kingdoms or politicians or establishing Christian laws. Those might all be good things, but that's not building his kingdom, you see. He's building his kingdom, and he's doing it by dying, and then he's rising, and then he's sending out that gospel word of his death and resurrection through us, and his spirit accompanies it to regenerate us and radically change hearts 
to make the dead alive in the heart. That's how his kingdom is built. So let's not misunderstand him. Let's not come up with our own ways to build his kingdom. He's going to do it. But he does it through the preached word. The whole word, the true word, the unadulterated word, the unmuzzled word, the whole word, the sword of the spirit. That's what changes. That's what converts. That's what brings life. We do him no favors when we, and we do nothing to advance his kingdom when we cleverly devise our own means and ways to advance his mission. Or what we've done is really, we've probably lost sight of his mission altogether and we're building some other kingdom. So put your own ideas, your own imaginations, put those back in the sheath, go back to his sword of the spirit, look at his means, look at his ways, Keep the course, trust his word, preach the word, live the word, make known the word. That's the way he's going to build his kingdom. Finally, we stick with this faithful Savior as we see him treated as a fiend. Treated as a fiend. Verses 55 and 56. So Jesus had spoken to Judas, and then he spoke to Peter, and now he turns to the crowd around him. And he first asks a question and then makes an observation. Let's look now. This is verse 55. At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. He's drawing all their attention to how strange this all seems. I mean, guys, this is a bit much, right? There's just one of me. And there's all of you with all of these swords and batons that you're all here. I'm a teacher, not a general. I'm no murderous thief. Am I such a danger to you? You had to bring all of this brawn, firepower, so to speak? I mean, where have you seen me before? You could have grabbed me anytime, peacefully teaching in the temple. And yet here we are, surrounded with batons and swords. What is this about, guys? Well... Jesus wants to make two things quite clear. First, is that this arrest of Jesus is not on all the up and up. This isn't just or right. This is cowardly. Remember the Jewish leaders, they were determined before to not try and arrest Jesus during the festival when everybody's here because it would create an uproar, except Judas came with an offer they couldn't refuse, but they have to do it under the cover of night because everybody knows Jesus is not a criminal. Everybody knows that. That's why they have to do it this way. That's what he's drawing to their attention. It's the greatest miscarriage of justice. But there's more to it than that. He's not merely pointing out that this must be unjust. But there's one more aspect to consider. Why is everything happening just this way? Verse 56. But all this has taken place, that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. So, again, the first part of that verse, Jesus' own words, all this is happening just this way, just like this, in order that, for the purpose that, the prophetic promises would come to pass, they'd be fulfilled, that the Old Testament promises would come true, just this way, just the way God predicted it, it must happen this way, and so it is, and it will. 
You see, all God's plan to save and redeem, it's all coming to pass. Even despite the injustice, even despite the horrors, even despite the evils, despite the cowardice, despite the misunderstanding, despite all the seeming missteps, but they're actually all precisely placed by the one in control, God's plan. It's like you would think God wrote a script for all of this. And Jesus is here, the writer of the script, and he's setting the stage. He's giving directions to all the players to be in their perfect places. And more than this, he's taking the lead role right at the center of it all. So, for example, first, you have all of the right actors taking all of their cues. Most of all, we have Judas, the betrayer, the friend who's turned on Jesus, just as Psalms 41 and 55 indicated a friend must do. It's all according to the script. More than the actors, you also have all the right props here. And in particular, I want to draw your attention to the swords. Of course, the crowd is armed with swords, loads of them. But even the disciples have a couple swords. Why would the disciples have swords? He tells them when they pull them out to put them away. What are these swords about? Well, we get an answer for that in Luke 22. You can turn there briefly or you can just listen. But in Luke's gospel, we hear why it's so important that even the disciples have swords with them. And that illumines the answer what's going on here in Matthew. But in Luke 22, he's telling them the kind of resources they need to get ready for what's coming. Because before, when he sent them on mission, what did he do? He said, don't take anything. You need to depend on me the whole way. Now he says, no, you need to take some provisions. In particular, he tells them, you need to take a sword. Again, in Luke 22, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. You're going to need a sword, but why? Now, verse 37. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. A quote from Isaiah 53. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. So get that. There's something about having swords, being armed, that helps fulfill the scripture he quotes here from Isaiah 53, noted there in verse 37 of Luke 22, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Back to Matthew, you see that these swords, in that way, they're like props. They portray Jesus and his band like what? Evildoers, transgressors, like robbers. If you saw 12 dudes going around and they had weapons, you'd think you stumbled upon a gang or a raving band of no-goods, of evildoers. Wouldn't want to meet them in an alley. By having them take the swords and they only take two, he says, that's enough. It's not to actually defend themselves. It's so they can be seen as what they need to be seen as, namely transgressors, wrongdoers. And so similarly, to return back to Matthew 26, why is it that Jesus is surrounded by clubs and swords being seized in the middle of the night? Well, we get a clue from what Jesus says. Verse 55, back to Matthew 26. Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? It looks like you're out to get a criminal, guys. What is this about? What is it about? Isaiah 53, and he was numbered with the transgressors. That's what this is about. He was being treated, counted as a sinner, a robber, an evildoer, a transgressor of the law of God. It was vital he portray and be seen as a criminal because Isaiah demands it in the prophecy. Again, here it is, Isaiah 53, verse 12. He poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. 
counted among them. He is seen as one of them, as one of the sinners. And why is that so crucial? Why is he to be seen as a criminal? Isaiah continues, He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Do you see? He's being counted, seen as a transgressor. Why? Because he's really bearing the sins of those transgressors. He needs to be portrayed and seen as a criminal because now he is before God because he's bearing our sins so that he can die for those sins so that he would be able to make peace for those sins because he's bearing them all and he bore them all. And it's proven and verified to all who can see because he's being hunted down like a criminal. But for no crimes that he has done, but for all of the ones that he's bearing, all of our sins upon him. He became a fiend. He became a transgressor as he took all of your sins, if you trust him, so that you could get his righteousness. That's the great exchange, and we're seeing it take place right in time in history here in Matthew 26. He gets our sins, he gets treated like a criminal, and we get all of his righteousness, and we get treated like the king's son. This is the great exchange and the glory of the gospel. Like we read in 2 Corinthians 5, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the gift of our Savior. What a glorious exchange. Why would anyone ever turn away from such a good Redeemer? And yet, in the midst of all this, that's exactly what the disciples do. Verse 56, the way it ends in Matthew 26. Then all the disciples left him and fled. They abandoned him. They run. They don't stick with him. And why not? They're scared. They're afraid. They're afraid they might get treated like a robber, a criminal, a fiend. They run, lest that happen to them. And I think we get this, the fear that they were dealing with. Maybe because we've succumbed to it many times. But we get the fear of this. This is the kind of fear the world puts before us all the time. They want to portray you as a bigot, an evildoer, a hater of society. If you would dare gather as the church, as Christ commands, or if you would speak about God's design for marriage, or gender, or sex, or for unity, or for true justice, or for what's good in God's world, if it opposes what they think, they're going to say, no, you hate us. You hate society. You're oppressors. You're unloving. You are all fiends. You're all evildoers. And maybe you're even thinking right now because of that kind of pressure. There's been times you should have spoken up and you didn't. You should have stood up for Christ, but you capitulated. What then? Well, we take hope in what we see even with the disciples. Verse 56, then all the disciples left him and fled. But thankfully, Matthew's gospel doesn't end there. There's still more to the story even to be written with them. We might capitulate, we might fail, but what do we do? We return and we stick with our Savior. We go back because He will have us back. Remember, He became a sinner that He might be a Savior for only sinners. He died for the unlovely. He died for the cowardly. He bore those transgressions to intercede for us that we might then know His mercy, know His forgiveness as we've been embraced by Him again and be bold as a lion as we'll see Peter do throughout the book of Acts. He stuck with us. He stuck himself with our sins. He was shamed for them, treated as a criminal, and now he's called us and say, stick with me. I've shown the way, even when it's hard, stick with me. 
And so let us make and hold fast that good confession. That he who promised is faithful all the way to the end. A great summary of what we take from this is the near the end of the book of Hebrews. But here we find our example. It reads this way. This is Hebrews 13, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here in this world, we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come with that Savior. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of the lips that acknowledge his name. Let's do that for him. Let's pray together. We acknowledge now, O Lord, your name. We declare together that you are a great Savior. Forgive us for our failings. Forgive us for our falterings. We need mercy. And yet we know, we hear in the gospel, you keep calling us back. Calling us to find rest in you and what you do and your salvation and your work. And so we confess we're sinners and we come to the Savior of sinners who was treated like a sinner for us. Oh, what a glorious gospel you've given. Let your saints, your people that trust you, know that mercy you've given. And maybe we then walk in boldness and confidence because we have a city that is to come where Christ is our King will reign with us and we will get to see him face to face. Prepare in us as your people bought your blood the good works that you've prepared beforehand. Equip us to walk in them. And that for your name we pray. Amen.